Part 2, Chapter 5 of Better Angel by Richard Meeker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Better Angel by Richard Meeker. Part 2, Chapter 5. Kurt found himself plunged so deeply into his work that he had little time to formulate his reactions to the city. He had gone to a Times Square hotel, which David had recommended as being reasonable and accessible. He had spent the evening after his arrival threading his way through the crowds on Broadway and Seventh Avenue. The cheapness and glitter of it sent his mind shrinking into itself. But the river of stars above his head turned to a luminous orchid with the reflected and softened glow of the street signs was strange and thrilling. He walked until he was tired, until his head buzzed with the mingled clangor of voices, of feet shuffling on cement, the grating of taxis, the rumble and screech of streetcars, the sullen subterranean thunder of the subway. It was crushing. And somewhere in this confusion he must find himself a place of quietness and aloneness. The light from a tower nearby flashed intermittent bars of lilac and vermilion on the coverlet of his hotel bed, and it made him think, suddenly, of that other lilac through that other window of his old room at home. As the moor hen builds her a nest in the watery sod, behold, I will build me a nest in the greatness of God. A city can do strange things to people. To Kurt it did little, spiritually. It broadened him, as all new knowledge must. It taught him things about people, people in crowds. It taught him by observation many things he had known before only through his books. But it wedged itself, its buzzing, kaleidoscopic, uproarious self, almost not at all into him. It was as if his aloofness, his aloneness, was a round and polished surface on which the wedge could never find entry, but was deflected and sent, tangential, touching, but never intruding, on its blind way. For he was still very much alone, and learning, he sometimes feared, to cherish his aloneness with a miserly satisfaction, to gloat a bit over the smoothness of his life. He gave it small thought for the most part. He was too busy, but sometimes he felt without being willing to admit that he felt his own life's oppression and yearned for the prick of the wedge. He worked at his music as he had never worked in college, without questioning the rightness of his endeavor. His study here was the part of music he liked least, the drudgery of mechanics in composition. But he knew its necessity and labored at it with no feeling of martyrdom, an acoustical mathematics it was, as necessary to him as conventional mathematics to an architect. He could always reassure himself, and at the same time divert himself, with a concert or with the perfectly realized scores the public library afforded him. He found himself a room far uptown. David had suggested the village, but the village, as he walked through it the second morning after his arrival, seemed to him even more oppressive than the forties. The drab brick fronts, the littered streets, 
the garbage in the gutters repelled him. The occasional blue door or gay window or fretted gateway denoting an interior utterly belying the squalor without interested him, but he knew could not make him content. If he were like David, it might. David could live inside, but something in him demanded an outside, too. So his third morning of searching took him up Riverside Drive, where the sweep of the river, with its fringing trees, was something he could look at and maybe love a little. The room he got at last was small, but it was high in a gable, and it had a window looking out across the Hudson, and he knew it would do. Here he spent most of his time. Classes and practice over, he would hurry back to it. There was usually something waiting for him there. A letter from home, from Derry, from Chloe, from David. The old ties, save David, one new one. He laughed sometimes to think how little difference place seemed to make. His whole emotional life was still bound up with these same personalities. Not present now to laugh and talk with, but nonetheless, though rather unsatisfactorily, present. From his father and mother, and from Derry, letters were transparent enough. The doings of the passing day at home, facetious comments on people he and Derry had known in college, the letters from David and from Chloe were more disturbing. David's were full of promises and protestations and threats to descend suddenly upon him and carry him off to some distant and exotic rendezvous. They were eager and hungry and rebellious, Ozzie apparently objecting to the New York idea, at the fate that kept him for an additional year in Ann Arbor. Were they a bit too facile? At any rate, they were letters such as a fictional heroine might thrill to receive, and they pleased something in him. He could, at this distance, detach himself almost completely, and regard the scene, David and himself, as an interlude on the stage, two lovers in a world apart, a fictionalized world. It influenced his replies, for his letters to David, while much less exotic and unrestrained, were almost equally literary. He thought them sincere. They were sincere, but they were cast in a literary style. The rain is cold tonight. It runs like silver down my small window. The flame under the kettle is blue in the dusk. Why aren't you here for tea, David? Or, I'm lonely. I shall walk along the river. The lights will waver in it, and on the benches, under the almost naked trees, there will still be, here and there, two or one, two alone or one alone, and I will be lonely too. With Chloe it was much the same. Had he been wiser in the ways of women with men, and men with women, he would have been more circumspect. For Chloe's letters, as the year grew older, became more and more personal. Though she never said so openly in her letters, Kirk could overhear in them a growing dissatisfaction with her life. He had feared it would be so. Chloe was so much a creature of moods, so elfin at times, so jealous of the beauty of life, so different from Roy. She had been for a long time almost his only audience, and certainly his chief encouragement. His songs had been sung first, or only, to her. Her sympathy he could rely on. She had urged him to continue. 
Her marriage, she had assured him, should make no difference. So he had continued to write to her of his work, as he had previously told her of it, to scribble off the themes of his new compositions for her. They were having a hard time of it, Chloe and Roy. Roy was not well. He was listless and took little interest in his job. He was irritable, and Chloe had to work herself, first in the art department of a Detroit department store, later in the office of a private school. I'm just home from work, she wrote. A snowy cold day. There was no letter in the box from you, as I had hoped there might be. I want so much to talk to you again. I could almost jump a freight such afternoons as this, and come straight to New York. And Kurt would reply in the same vein. Night after night he would sit in the small shadowy room, writing carefully phrased letters to the other inhabitants of his small world. I'm becoming a man of letters, he wrote to David. It's not right. Psychologically I'm being repressed, and God knows what, I suppose. I should go on a social spree occasionally, to be psychologically sound and normal and safe from the analysts. But I don't, don't want to. I simply sit here and write to you and to Derry and Chloe, because you're not here to talk to. Other people don't interest me much, should they? Am I the misanthrope in modern dress? It was to him a world removed from reality, yet perfectly real and vital to him. It was almost like the old days in Barton, playing theater in Nobbs' barn. Only now he was essaying the more difficult histrionic feat of playing all the roles himself. To Derry, and to Derry's family, and his own, he was most matter-of-fact. He should have liked to carry his small drama over into his letters with Derry, but Derry would not play up. To David he was the absent beloved, to Chloe the romantic young artist, relying upon her for encouragement and understanding. He was, without being aware of it, dramatizing himself, and doing an admirable job of it. He went home for the holidays, and stopped off for a day and a night at the Graylings. Derry was there, bursting with delight to have him back, punning and playing the fool, as he always had done. David had been called to Philadelphia. Chloe had come home, too, alone. She had little to say, but Kurt could feel her watching him, and he dreaded seeing her alone, carrying over into actuality the situation their letters had created. When Mrs. Grayling had gone to bed, however, he sent Derry away. I want to talk to Chloe for a bit, kid. Go to bed. But don't dare go to sleep, for after I'm through with her, I shall want to talk to you the rest of the night. Derry, grumbling and complaining, and signaling behind his sister's back, did as he was told. You want to talk to me, Kurt? Isn't that what we've been promising ourselves all these weeks? The fire was burning dully in the grate. Kurt lay on the Davenport. Chloe took a cushion and sat beside him on the floor. Her eyes were fixed on the dying fire. Someone ought to paint you that way, Chloe. She started. How? What? In silhouette, against a wall, all flecked with fire colors. Oh, no. She stretched her arms over her head, brought them down rigidly behind her, and lay back on their support. It's... Oh, I can't tell you what it is to be here with you again, Kurt. She shouldn't. He was afraid of what she might tell him. You're happy, aren't you, with Roy, 
She only looked at him, and then immediately back into the fire, not answering. Kurt, why is life so strange, so wrong? Is it so wrong, Chloe? She was silent then for a long time. He fancied she was crying. Suddenly, her hand brushed her eyes, and seeking gropingly for his own hand, fastened over it. I've missed you so, she whispered, so terribly. He drew his hand away quickly and sat up. Chloe, please, you mustn't, you mustn't. He got up brusquely and walked to the fire. He felt himself trembling. What was this? Did she love him? He didn't love her, he knew. He liked her. He had perhaps even tried to persuade himself, when he was writing those beastly letters, that he loved her. What had they said, those letters? He must be more careful. She should never have said that. He felt her standing behind him, and stiffened. I must, Kurt. Her voice was breathless, and the words seemed forced out of her lips against her will. I must, I must. Why pretend that I'm happy I'm not? I'm hating it all. Roy's a bore. He laughs at what I say and read and think. I can't talk with him. We don't speak the same tongue. Oh, it's been such a rotten mistake. He did not turn, but he knew she was behind him, rigid and tense, her mind crowded with resentments against Roy, which pushed her unresisting towards him. Please, Chloe, I'm sorry. There seemed nothing else to say. He faced her and put his hands on her shoulders. He felt her relax and sway towards him. He held her tautly away. Here, let's sit down now and talk about it. If it were solely that, it was unfortunate, but not utterly serious. People were finding all the time that they were mismated. He had been afraid of it. This thing did not touch him, save as a friend. If only she did not love him, or fancy so. Tell me about it, if you care to. It's just that I don't love him, Kurt. I wonder if I ever did. I've tried, honestly I have. Oh, it's as much my fault as his, maybe. I wouldn't have married him, I guess, if mother hadn't been so eager that I shouldn't. I did want to get away, still do. I can't stand home any better now than then, for long. But the marriage is wrong, Kurt, all wrong and twisted. We've nothing in common. Roy hates what he calls my high-brow manner. We're the Kennicotts all over again. Maybe I'm wrong, but I can't see that it's right or moral to go on living with him, feeling as we both do. What are you going to do about it, Chloe? I've done it already, Kurt. I saw a lawyer this afternoon. He said I could get a divorce pretty easily and without much fuss. I'll have to claim non-support. Non-support? Does that seem quite square to Roy? She looked at him questioningly before she replied. Does it seem unfair to you? He's not supported me, you know, and since this imagined illness of his, we've had a pretty wretched time of it. You mean he's not really ill? Of course he's not ill. He looks perfectly well and eats and sleeps well. You don't know his family. I don't either. They're all that way, always fancying something's the matter with them. The doctor calls it a nervous condition, very peculiar. But he has to call it something, I suppose, to collect his fees. They are enough, God knows. You think you can't try it a bit longer, to make sure? Sure? My God, Kurt, I am sure. If marriages can't make two people happy, it's as wrong and as immoral as—as 
as the things they put people in jail for. There is no other way out. If there were any other way at all of freeing myself, don't you suppose I'd do it? But there isn't, and I must be free. Oh, Kurt! She laid her head back, the curve of her throat like marble in the half-light, and cried silently, her fingers clutching the chair arms. What could he say or do? He walked behind her, and with his hand stroked her forehead and the sleek blackness of her hair. Don't cry. Don't cry. There's such a lot in the world for you, Chloe. And he went quietly upstairs. Derry was asleep, and he undressed in the dark and crept into bed without rousing him. The scene in the room below had upset him. He was not sleepy. He tried to reassure himself. I've had no part in this. It's not my doing. Not at all my doing. Yet, back in his mind, like a festering splinter, was the thought that perhaps, all innocently, he had. End of Part 2, Chapter 5